With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to another Thursday night edition of BAMS Radio. I'm Thomas Watts and I'll be your host again two weeks in a row. They've let me out of my production cage. And uh, that I'm doing I'm doing this because, well, Drudy Armand has work to do. He is covering a high school football game. High school football playoffs are right around the corner, so Drew is busy doing that, working for 97.7 The Zone in Huntsville. But you do have me, Thomas Watts, producer, now host. We've got a great show lined up for you. Uh, first hour is going to be with William Redfish Barger. I'm going to talk to him about everything Alabama, excuse me. Obviously, Alabama coming off a big 33-14 to 14 win over the Texas A&M Aggies and taking a well-deserved breather ahead of the stretch run against, you know, obviously two weeks from two, – two Saturdays from now against LSU and then later on in November a visit by the Auburn Tigers. So – while Alabama remains undefeated and the clear-cut number one uh, number one team in the country, not over. Season's not over. A couple of tough games headed to heading down the pipe. So we have plenty to talk about this evening. At hour number two, when Fish jumps off with us, I do have a little bit of audio. Even though Drew's not with us, he did have a chance to talk to Ryan Fowler uh, about his like both he and Ryan talked about the Crimson Tide, so I'll give you that audio. And John Garcia had had a chance to talk to uh, Drew about recruiting. One of the things that happened during the A and M weekend is a gigantic series of recruits. You know, it was a crazy weekend. If you didn't see the lists, there were plenty of five stars, and Alabama did get a commitment from Major Tennyson, a tight end from Texas. So there is plenty, plenty to talk about, plenty of stuff going on in this show. I will say, if you would like to jump into the conversation and you're listening live, give us a holler at 714-510-3707. We would love to hear from you. If you want to talk a little A&M, talk a little LSU. I know that an LSU player whose name escapes me decided to start talking trash a little bit early. Hey, good luck, dude. That's all I'm going to say there. But – uh, we're going to be joined by William Redfish Barger in a little while. Unfortunately, I am going to have to play some music, much like if you listened last week. Got to play a little song so I can actually put on my producer's hat and get Fish onto the program. Before we do, let's just, you know, let's review. Let's talk about the Alabama-Texas A&M game. Alabama really dominated this game, even though they were down at some point, about six and a half minutes in the third quarter. Yardage-wise, Alabama went up and down the field almost at will, and... If not for 
some troubles in the red zone, and I don't buy into the theory as much that Lane Kiffin decided to abandon the run at that point. Remember, fans, when the red zone becomes a thing, the field compresses. So you don't have to have guys running all over the place chasing a Calvin Ridley that almost got deep at will on the Aggie off on the Aggie defense, excuse me. So it's a lot harder to do some of the outside zone stuff. So that, that I, I was disheartened with the struggles, but I also understood why parts of it happened. So that's I wouldn't I wouldn't be jumping off the uh, the bandwagon or jumping off a cliff because of the struggles in the red zone. And the reality of the situation is, even with those struggles, Alabama put up a solid number of yards on a good defense. And Alabama completed a run of three straight ranked teams where their average win was over, it was 20 points, basically. I mean, just, just crazy, over 20, you know, three touchdown wins over guys like that. And it could have been worse. I mean, you're, you're talking about if Alabama's red zone inefficiencies don't rear their ugly heads, you beat the number six team in the country by, you know, 25 or more points. That's nothing to shake a stick at. So I, I think it's all good in Crimson Tide land, and uh, I hope Redfish will agree with me. Otherwise, I'm going to look like a fool. But, you know, story of my life when it comes to sports. So how's about we do this? I just wanted to make a couple of quick points about the Alabama A&M game. But uh, I'm just a guy that pushes buttons. Redfish is the football guy. So let me play a little Sweet Home Alabama. And I will get Redfish on the line, and we will talk a little bit of Bama football. We will be right back with Redfish for more BAMS Radio. Alabama's taking a little breather after another big win, and uh, 
think life's life's good for uh, for the boys in Tuscaloosa. I'll put it to you that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know they they had three hard practices this week, and they're going to get a little bit of time off. Uh, you know, but both the uh, the players and the coaching staff. You know, you're going to see them uh, the coaching staff spread out tomorrow and, and start going out and watching. You know, some of the the key prospects left in this recruiting class. There's not that many when you look at the number of commitments that they have. But you know, the coaches will get to go. You know, watch high school football games. Um, you'll get to see a lot of the players. You know, get time off and, and go home and spend time with their family and. You know, some of them make their way back to their high schools to watch high school playoff games and stuff. So, you know, an off week is is always uh, what I like to call kind of a cleansing process, Um, you know, both for the coaching staff and the players. And it couldn't have come at a better time, um, I think, for this Alabama team, you know, coming off of a big win, um, you know, against the number six ranked team in the country, Texas A&M, last Saturday. It certain certain I think I agree with you. Great timing, you know. Eight weeks of straight football is tough on any team, particularly when you've faced three straight weeks of ranked uh, ranked opponents. Excuse me. So so let's let's talk about the A and M Bama game a little bit. Coming out of that game, what like what were your general impressions of this Crimson Tide team, particularly on the offense? Well, you know, I felt like going into the game, Thomas, and you know, kind of, you know, I hate to sound like you know. We're, we're bragging about revisionist history here, but I felt like Alabama was going to have a lot of success being able to run between the tackles against Texas A&M. You know, some of their other opponents have had success. And, you know, when you've got, you know, guys like uh, Miles Garrett and, uh, you know, D.D. Hall, the other defensive end, you know, they're, they're very explosive edge rushers, but they're, you know, kind of undersized at the point of attack. And I thought Alabama could have some success going into that game, you know, running at both of those guys. And I thought that, uh, you know, their linebackers, you know, were a little bit suspect. Um, so, you know, I think if, if you know, Lane Kiffin had wanted to, um, he probably could have run for, you know, 350, close to 400 yards had he chosen to dial the offense up that way. But, you know, and people don't think that this actually happens. But when you've got a a true freshman quarterback, you know, you've only got X number of hours that you can rep Jalen Hurts in practice. And, you know, you you saw the Alabama fan fan base get frustrated against Western Kentucky. Um, You know, you saw him get frustrated, you know, and all that. But, but, you know, he he is – expanding the playbook during live action versus other competition, Um, you know, trying to get the true freshman Jalen Hurts up to speed on everything. And, you know, my my only real complaint, you know, I'm always a a glass half full guy, Thomas, um, is, is, you know, I just wish that, you know, the Alabama fan base would, you know, kind of – I was listening to a – and I won't name the name, but I was listening to a sports talk radio show on Monday. And an Alabama fan called in and was just irate over the fact, you know, on that last, you know, beautiful run that Jalen Hurts had, you know, this guy was, you know, going off the reservation because he felt like Calvin Ridley, you know, was wide open down the left sideline. And Jalen Hurts never bothered to look at him. And I was like, you know, 
let's just say that he had chosen to do that. Um, had he, you know, thrown an inaccurate pass, uh, the play could have been negated. Had he thrown an accurate pass and Calvin Ridley uh, dropped it, it would have been negated. Um, had he thrown an accurate pass and the DB made a play on the ball and batted it down, the play had been negated. But when I see a true freshman, uh, you know, taking off and, and making a 45-yard explosive, beautiful run like that, what what is there to complain about? No, I agree with you. And that actually dovetails into into my next question. Uh, before you came on, I said that I think it's a little bit much that Bama fans were upset with the play calling in the red zone. And I specifically cited how when you get down inside the 20, the field compresses and some of the stuff that Alabama has been taking advantage of does go away. Were you upset with the play calling you know, obviously Alabama struggled a little bit in the red zone. Was that was that a point of contention for you, or, or you know, what what were your thoughts on that aspect of the A and M Bama game? No, and I think that's that's where the experimentation takes place with Lane Kiffin, and obviously, you know, Nick Saban is signing off on this. Um, you know, on that first drive, let's just use the first drive as an example. You know, they were you know popping off you know ten to fifteen yard runs with Damian Harris. Um, every other play, they drove the ball down the field. And, yeah, I understand. You know, it goes back to the the 2012 Texas A&M game where everybody got upset because, you know, they got down inside the 10-yard line and Doug Nussmeyer, you know, threw the ball uh, three straight times versus running the ball three straight times. Um, I I just think you have to understand, you know, the, the, the chess match that takes place with these coaches. And, uh, you know, could, could Lane Kiffin have lined up and maybe put Mac Wilson at fullback and pounded the ball in there? Yeah, probably so. But he, he's trying to get a guy that, that just turned 18 back in August, uh, you know, Jalen Hurts. He's trying to get him to, you know, expand the playbook and, uh, you know, broaden his horizons. And I just don't understand why, uh, you know, this is a young man, um, let's just use this off week as the midpoint of the 2016 season, you know, that's responsible for 20 touchdowns via with his own legs or through the air throwing the body up to other people. Um, you know, I think that's something to celebrate. Um, you know, if you go back to, you know, 2011, um, you know, when A.J. McCarron was the starting quarterback as a redshirt sophomore, um, he, he, you know, if you go back to you know the the national championship game against LSU, and factor his stats into that statistic, he was responsible for 30 touchdowns in at the end of January. So you know, I, I just don't understand why people are so caught up on the net. You know, it's like you know ESPN names Jalen Hurts the MVP of the whole conference midterm MVP. And, you know, people are complaining about, you know, his down-the-field accuracy and, uh, you know, this. if there was another quarterback, this would be happening. You know, let's just say, let's play devil's advocate. Uh, let's just say that Blake Barnett had stayed and he had beaten out Jalen Hurts. So a lot of people thought when Blake Barnett showed up on campus that he was a dual-threat quarterback. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. You know, he was a guy that was a four eight five forty guy, 
And when you're playing private school ball in, in California, uh, that might be good enough to, you know, get you labeled a dual-threat quarterback. But that'll get you killed in the SEC when you're six foot five and 215 pounds. So if let, you know going through the schedule from USC all the way to Texas A&M, let, let's just say you know he's not a threat to run, and so you're 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 being on him having the arm talent to get it done. I don't care who you are, you know whether you're Tom Brady or Peyton Manning, um, or, or maybe the. Uh, you know, the, the best pure passer in, in the SEC this year, uh, you know, the Allen kid at Arkansas. You know, he doesn't have the best surrounding cast, but he's still got the, probably the best pure passing um, uh, ability. There's going to be games where, you know, that, that, that passing game just isn't firing on all cylinders. And if you don't have the ability, either with the offensive line or the running backs or whatever, um, that's it. That's all you wrote. You know, if somebody, you know, walks up and stacks the box and forces you to throw, you know, if you can't respond to that, you're dead in the water as an offensive football team. And that's what I love so much about uh, what, you know, Nick Saban and Lane Kiffin have done. You know, this, you know, transition, Thomas, is, is you know, what I like to call it, this, this metamorphosis. I personally think it started in Bryant-Denny Stadium in November of 2012 when Texas A&M and Kevin Sumlin unleashed Johnny Manziel on Nick Saban. You know, immediately after that loss, you saw a couple of things happen. Number one, uh, you know, Nick Saban is, is so good at what he does. He realized to immediately change um, his recruiting philosophy on the kind of guys in the front seven that he was bringing in. You know, before that, he was bringing in big, bulky defensive linemen, um, linebackers that I like to refer to as thumpers. But none of those guys were good at space, and they weren't good at changing directions, um, you know, with a, with a multi-talented quarterback like Johnny Manziel. Um, so I think this transition that everybody has seen started in 2012. Now, it took – probably a couple years to finally come to fruition. But, you know, in 2014, when, you know, they made the decision to put Blake Sims at quarterback, that was probably ground zero. Um, you know, last year, um, you went from having Sims to Jake Coker, and, you know, the, the offense was, um, you know, they, they had a, a, you know, a Trojan horse with Derrick Henry, um, you know, once the light came on for Jake Coker, um, you know, with the play-action passing game, um, you know, it all kind of came together. But, you know, I, I think that the biggest thing that has really stuck out to me is a guy like Nick Saban that's you know, the, the Bill Belichick of college football coaches. Um, he realized that his recipe, uh, going back to – uh, you know, 2012, and I think probably when, you know, he licked his wings and said, okay, i got to do something about this, was after the kick six game against Auburn in 2013. He realized that, you know, my recipe's not working anymore. And based on these, you know, spreads you out all over the place offenses, whether you've got a, a dual threat quarterback or, 
you know, elite wide receivers and a quarterback like Trevor Knight at Oklahoma or Chad Kelly for the last uh, two years uh, with tall wide receivers that can throw the ball over the place, I've got to change my philosophy. And that's the difference between an also-ran and a champion. And I think Nick Saban made the decision. It's one of the reasons why, you know, he brought Lane Kiffin in. Um, they changed their recruiting philosophy. And that's where we're at today as far as this off week's concerned is, you know, you don't no longer hear about a game manager at quarterback. And you no longer hear about the, you know, plug-and-play, big, bulky, 325-pound defensive linemen, 250-pound linebackers at Alabama. It's, you know, they may give up some points on defense under Jeremy Pruitt, but they're so explosive. They're they're so uh, opportunistic. Um, You know, they're, they're scoring just as many points as the other team's offense puts on the table. And, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about the direction, um, you know, at this off-week point, this midpoint of the season, where this team is, both offensively and defensively. And, and you know, the, the defensive thing, e- easy segue, you know, you softballed me, so I'll softball right back. The big thing coming out of the A&M game, aside from the fact that Jonathan Allen is not actually human, he is Superman, and he proved it by launching himself at Trevor Knight, was the unfortunate injury to Eddie Jackson. So w- where does Alabama turn? How does this, this now unfortunate injury, ha- who, who takes his spot? What do you see there? Well, I think you've kind of uh, baited the ground, so to speak. I think when you look at what, you know, Jonathan Allen has done, um, you know, it's not just him. It's, it's Dalvin Tomlinson. Um, you know, it's Deron Payne. It's Ryan Anderson. Um, you know, those guys are all so explosive um, that they all make plays. And, you know, that makes the job of the guys in the back end of the defense that much easier. And I'm not trying to diminish, you know, what Eddie Jackson has brought to the table this year as a safety on the back end of the defense, not only as a safety, but as, you know, the punt returner, you know, huge loss. Um, that being said, I think what this has done is it's going to force, you know, Nick Saban and, and Jeremy Pruitt, you know, Tosh Lapoy, Derek Ainsley, all those guys, Carl Dunbar, all those guys on the defensive side of the ball, um, they're, they're going to have to find the next guy up. And, you know, it might be Hootie Jones. Um, you know, it might be moving Minka Fitzpatrick from the nickelback to Eddie Jackson's spot and then bringing, you know, Tony Brown um, into that nickelback role. And it could be a combination of all three. But, you know, Eddie Jackson's a senior. Um, you know, bless his heart, I hated to see what happened to him because he was so exciting to watch, such a dynamic playmaker. Um, both at the safety spot or as the punt returner. But, you know, this may, you know, kind of force the next guy up's hand, you know, to step into that role, whether it's Hootie Jones or Minka Fitzpatrick or Tony Brown. It's going to be a combination of those three, in my opinion. Um, It could help down the road, um, and especially spilling over next year, 
because all three of those guys, Hootie Jones, Mika Fitzpatrick, Tony Brown, they're all coming back for 2017. So on the short side of that, you know, you might see Alabama, you know, take their lumps. I don't think they're going to take their lumps versus LSU or Mississippi State or Auburn during the rest of this season. Um, you might not see those lumps take place unless they face a uh, a dynamic passing team in the playoffs if they get to that point, which I expect them to. But uh, I think this is, you know, a, a, you know, you hate to see Eddie Jackson be gone, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of a, a next man up philosophy and, and mindset with with this Alabama team. And, uh, you know, you're talking about, you know, a guy like Eddie Jackson being gone, he's proved himself. And this is a guy, you know, two years ago that was, you know, kind of being banked upon as being the, you know, the cornerback. Um, you know, they moved him to safety because he wasn't good in one-on-one coverage at corner. You know, he kind of carved his niche out at safety. And, and I think, you know, whether it's Hootie Jones or Mika Fitzpatrick or Tony Brown, who's, you know, one of the best athletes on the team, um, you know, I think they're going to be okay because there's not a another dynamic quarterback with big, tall, wide receivers on the schedule, uh, you know, going forward, in my opinion. That's true. And I think I made the point on another podcast that I don't think it'll matter versus LSU because Alabama will be in base or nickel so much that it's not. I think that the vulnerability really comes in, in the, when they go dime. And I don't see LSU forcing Alabama to go dime ever. Maybe later on, but we'll see. You know, Fish, I asked you about Jalen Hurts and the Heisman Trophy last week. And, uh, Another week, another Alabama player getting Heisman Trophy love. Do you buy into the Jonathan Allen for Heisman hype? Because you see a lot of, you know, C- I know CBS Sports ran something. I believe ESPN's run something saying defensive players deserve the Heisman. Do you buy into that, or is that just kind of here today, gone tomorrow storylines for college football? Well, I mean, if you're asking me if I think Jonathan Allen is one of the best college football players in the country, um, you know, take my, you know, bammer blinders off, you don't have to ask me that question. Uh, the national media is speaking for Jonathan Allen. You know, that being said, um, you know, hit the rewind button to, what, four or five years ago when, uh, you know, Dominican Sue, you know, got the invite to the New York. Um, you know, Jonathan Allen, because Alabama – you know, the, the the explosive plays are so, you know, evenly distributed. Um, he, he's not going to put up, you know, Dominicom Sue numbers. But does he deserve to be mentioned with, you know, Lamar Jackson, Jabril Peppers, uh, Lamar Jackson, all those guys? Yeah, he does. Um, he's that good at what he does. He's, he's the most complete defensive lineman I've seen at Alabama uh, since a guy that used to cave my head in practice every day 30 years ago named John Copeland. Um, you know, the guy's got explosive hands. He can change directions. Um, you know, this is a guy that could have come out last year and gone pro. Um, you know, the, the draft grade that was given was late first round, early second. So I, I think he made a, a great decision to come back. 
Um, you know, and I think the thing that's going to serve John Allen so well once he gets to the next level is, you know, he's got the size and the, and the strength to play defensive tackle. But you can line him up out there as an edge rusher, and he's going to win the majority of reps against any offensive tackle that you put up him against as an edge rusher. So, um, yeah, he, he deserves the mention. I'm not saying he's ever going to be a legitimate candidate to win it, but, yeah, he deserves the mention. Well, in that vein, uh, as you said earlier, this is the the midpoint of Alabama's season, even though they only have four more games. Is Jonathan Allen your your pre-bi-week first half of the season MVP for this Crimson Tide team? If not, who do you have? I'm just curious. Uh, you know, it's – you know. Thomas is so hard. Um, you know, could it be Jonathan it's a good Allen? Yeah. To have. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, could it be Reuben Foster? Um, you know, could it be Jonah Williams at right tackle? You know, could it be the running backs by committee, which I'm I'm all aboard and love to see. Uh, you know, ESPN, you know, the worldwide leader in sports. Uh, you know, they went out on a limb and named Jalen Hurts the midseason MVP of the whole SEC conference. So I, I think you've got, uh, you know, this is a good thing for, for Alabama football fans. You've got a lot of guys that are excelling at their individual positions. And when you've got a lot of guys that are excelling at their individual positions, it makes for a very dangerous football team. And I think that's where Alabama's at right now. That's true. Uh, you know, I, I want to kick harken back to your time as a player because I just thought of this question, jumping back to the A&M game. How big a deal was Alabama really beating up on A&M coming away with a 19-point win, given the number of highly touted prospects that were in town this past weekend? Was that, would that be a big deal to those recruits and, those four, and players? Um. You know, I think if you break it down to, you know, individual recruiting battles, what you have to look at is, you know, recruiting now is, yes, you know, with the Alabama brand and, you know, them winning, you know, you know Thomas, this is the ninth straight year, um, you know, going into the month of November where this Alabama football program has been in the mix for the national championship. Um, and I think that speaks volumes for itself. It's a total credit to Nick Saban and, and what he does. Uh, but, you know, you have to kind of break it down into individual recruiting battles. And the difference, I think, in, you know, recruiting now versus when I was coming out of high school 30 years ago, you know, things have transitioned from, hey, you know, go somewhere. You know, this is what I was faced with go somewhere where you think you've got a chance to win a championship, you know, in the next four years. You know, now it's where can I go and I can get on the field quickly. And I mean, like, you know, if it's not next year, the year after. And, you know, these kids are so programmed from, you know, all the attention that they get, you know, all, you know, Twitter, Instagram, social media, all the different recruiting outlets out there. Um, you know, it, it's a it's a microwave society. It's it's I want to do this now, and you know, there's guys out there that can do it now. You know, 
uh, you know, Jalen Hurts, uh, Jonah Williams, Josh Jacobs. Um, you know, those are just a few that are doing it now. But there, there's a balance some there with, within that thought that, you know, here is the flagship program. And you've got Nick Saban kind of overlording over the whole thing. And I think his process and what he presents to a parent, to me, makes the most sense. And this is what he sells them. He says, hey, look, uh, send your son here. If he is good enough to play as a freshman, I'm going to play him. And, you know, uh, he, he did it with Mark Barron. He did it with Julio Jones. He did it with Mark Ingram. You know, look at this class. He's doing it with Jalen Hurts, Jonah Williams, you know, Josh Jacobs, B.J. Emmons. They're all getting to play. But I think where it, it comes to a head is um, where, where he really sinks his hooks into the parents are if, if three years down the road, if your son is good enough to go to the NFL, you know, being a three-and-done guy, there's no better place for your son to go than Alabama. We're going to showcase him. We're going to get him in a position to do that. But guess what? If he's not, he's going to get a degree, at least a bachelor's degree, on the on the front end. On the back end, if he, you know, if they want to, you know, pull up Barrett Jones, you know, and be that intelligent and get a master's degree uh, on top of it, you know. They're sending kids out, you know, on the streets when they get done playing. And, you know, they're overly educated for what they've done compared to the average college student that goes to a four-year school. And and then they've got the the football aspect of it, um, you know, to back it up. And and I think that's the magic that Nick Saban works with with all these, you know, top-level recruits and their parents. Well, that, that's an interesting take. I have to admit, I don't follow recruiting as much, but I, I, you know, learn something new every day. You know, moving on a little bit, obviously big win this past weekend against Texas A&M, but what are you looking for? You know, the bye week is generally considered a time, what's Nick Saban's quote, rest, relax, and recover, but don't get relieved. You know, Bye weeks are a chance to get healthy, but they're also a chance to keep improving your game. And obviously the Crimson Tide has a tough game against the LSU Tigers in two Saturdays. What are you looking for in this bye week? You know, what are you looking for the Tide to really, like, What if there are a couple of things to fix or tweak this week, what do you expect Alabama to focus on? Well, I think, number one, you know, what you're going to see, you know, this is the number one complaint of the Alabama fan base. Um, you know, they're, they're all upset and, and disjointed about, you know, Jalen Hurts' lack of being able to distribute the ball down the field to the wide receivers. And I'll tell you this, um, you know, what you see against LSU is as good as it's going to get until December, let's just say that they beat LSU, which I expect them to. Uh, what you see out of Jalen Hurts versus LSU, at, you know, in Baton Rouge, that's going to be the most improvement you're going to see out of him until December. You know, if they win the conference, they go to the SEC championship game, and they're in the playoff picture. Uh, you know, the next chance for him to improve what his inadequacies are 
it's it's not going to be until you know the bowl game from you know December to January. So that that's what it is. Um, I I really don't see a lot of inadequacies with this team. Um, I, I personally don't think that LSU's defense, despite the statistics being better, you know, this is still the same bunch last year that you know going into the game. You know, Derrick Henry was, you know, kind of an outlier in the Heisman Trophy hunt. Uh, Leonard Fournette was the leading, you know, candidate for the Heisman Trophy. Uh, Their center, Ethan Postick, was the leading candidate for the Remington Trophy. And, you know, Deron Payne destroyed Ethan Postick's Remington campaign. Uh, A'shaun Robinson, Jerron Reed, Reuben Foster uh, ruined – Leonard Fournette's Heisman campaign. So, you know, it's still the same, you know, pieces of the puzzle that's going into this game. Um, they might be a little bit older. They might be a little bit younger. But what I see is still the same offense. Um, they're still Leonard Fournette heavy. You know, they've got a, a transfer quarterback from Purdue. Um, you know, he wouldn't have left Purdue if he was winning games at Purdue. Um, you know, the guy's not a, a statue of liberty in the pocket. He's not a stiff, but, you know, he's not uh, Trevor Knight. He's not Chad Kelly. So, you know, the way I look at it, Thomas, is, you know, you, you, you load the box with seven guys. You dare this transfer quarterback from Purdue to beat you. Now, LSU does have uh, some really good wide receivers. But I think the strategy going into this game versus LSU is to load the box, dare them to run Fournette and, and Geis and those running backs, and let's just see what this Purdue transfer quarterback, if he can deliver the football. Um, you know, when it's Alabama's defense versus LSU's offense, the, the thing that I think most people are missing is, you know, there, there's a lot of, I think, fear – within the fan base of, you know, this is the best defense that that Alabama's faced, talking about going to LSU next weekend. And from a talent standpoint, I don't think it's as good as Texas A&M's defense was last week. So I still think the, uh, you know, running between the tackles, you know, LSU has a – the SEC leading sack artist in Arden Key, who's 238 pounds, um, you know, the other outside linebackers, 245. Um, I think if you're Wayne Kiffin and Nick Saban, you know, you line up and you run right at these guys. And let's just see what happens. You know, I, I, I've I've done some film study on LSU, but I've got to ask, you know, I'm, I'm talking to the former player Redfish when I ask this question. Earlier this week, the L- one of the LSU defensive players, I'm not even going to name him because he's not relevant to me, he comes out with that, we're just going to dominate the game, we're going to get a win, et cetera, et cetera. As a player, when you hear something like that, what's the locker room, like, what's the locker room reaction to when, when you see a bulletin board, something bulletin board material like that? Well, considering the position that he plays um, – what that would, you know, kind of tell me, you know, as a former offensive lineman, uh, you know, anytime there's a pile up in the game, 
you know, I'm going to go looking for that guy that ran his mouth and said that, you know, hey, we're going to dominate these guys. And if I catch him tiptoeing around the damn pileup, I'm going to ear hole. Um, and, you know, with, with guys like Bradley Bozeman and Cam Robinson and, and Jonah Williams, Ross Pierce Baker, um, I expect that to happen. But, you know, I, I think at the same time, you kind of have to put that thing into context. You know, this is a team that's lost two games, you know, prior to Ed Ogeron taking the, you know, the team over. Um, I don't think that should be viewed as a big surprise. You, you know, what, what do you expect them to say? Um, you know, they've got two losses. Um, you know, they've got a chance to salvage their season uh, with a win over Alabama. Um, you know, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, you'll see those kind of comments from a Nick Saban coach team. But uh, I think it's being uh, made a bigger deal than it probably should be. But I'll say this, you know, on paper, based on what I've seen, this this still, you know, despite all the spreads you out, run the football, pass the football. If you want to win and win at a high level in the SEC, this is still a line of scrimmage league. And what I mean by that is the team with the best offensive line is going to beat the team with the lesser defensive line. And the team with the best defensive line is going to beat the team with the lesser offensive line. And as far as this Alabama versus LSU matchup, Alabama gets check marks on both sides of the ball. Their offensive line is better than LSU's D-line, and Alabama's D-line is better than LSU's O-line. So, you know, that, that, that brings me to, to my question. And th- this, this storyline, I have to say, has really bothered me because of how it's essentially sprung up out of nowhere. Fish, if you'll, if you'll hearken back to a few weeks ago, it was, oh, Alabama's got four straight-ranked teams coming up on the schedule uh, with Arkansas and into Tennessee and to Texas A&M. And then after Alabama thoroughly dismantled both Arkansas and Tennessee going into the A&M game, it was who's the biggest challenger left for Alabama. And a lot of commentators, a lot of talking heads – came up with either particularly LSU or Auburn. Do you buy that storyline, or do you kind of feel like it's manufactured because Alabama took their, you know, three-week challenge and, quite frankly, blew it apart? Do you buy the LSU-Auburn storyline that's now being peddled by the uh, talking heads such as they were? You know, I wouldn't really throw Arkansas and Tennessee into the mix. Um, You know, they're, they're not on the same level as uh, A&M and LSU. But, but I think if you look at what Alabama did um, to, to A&M last week, you know, look, there's, you know, Miles Garrett could be the number one guy taken in the draft. Um, they've got a sophomore, I think he is, you know, Dylan Mack at nose guard slash defensive tackle. Um, you know, great player. You know, D.D. Hall on the other side. Uh, you know, late first round, probably early second round draft pick when he comes out. Um, I think they are the most talented front seven that Alabama's faced so far, and at least until uh, after they play LSU. Um, You know, I I think what it is, Thomas, is what I like to call Bama fatigue. 
uh, you know, the rest of the college football world is so sick and tired uh, of Alabama being there, you know, year after year, week after week. You know, you, you just you, you want to see some sort of storyline created out of ESPN and, you know, Fox Sports, USA Today, whatever it is, you know, that they love to see the king of the hill knocked down. And I, I just don't think that LSU is, is talented enough to pull that off. This is still the same front seven on defense last year that basically put, you know, two things happened on both sides of the ball last year versus LSU at Bryant-Denny Stadium. Uh, Deron Payne derailed Ethan Posick, LSU center, uh, totally ruined his, his Remington Trophy campaign. Alabama's front seven ruined Leonard Fournette's Heisman Trophy campaign. And if you flip it over the other side of the ball, Alabama's offensive line and Derrick Henry, uh, you know, had their way with this same front seven. You know, that put Derrick Henry squarely into the Heisman Trophy race. Um, now, you, you've got a different guy dialing up the defense. It's not Kevin Steele anymore. It's Dave Aranda. But still, uh, it's still the same dynamics. And I don't think it's going to have a – even though it's at Baton Rouge, you know, everybody's worried about, you know, that trip to Baton Rouge. But, you know, Jalen Hurts went to Old Miss, uh, got an ear hold, fumbled, uh, jumped back up and let a, a touchdown drive. Um, I just don't see it happening the way that the experts think that it's going to be close. I think it's going to be close, Thomas, for a half. But I think in the third quarter, Alabama's going to pull away. That's fair. Alabama has made a made a season of, you know, second half, hit the afterburners, catch us if you can. So here's hoping that your prediction turns out to be correct. You know, you did bring up something, and – uh, th- this storyline, I'm really since it's by it's the bye week blues. I'm, I'm kind of looking around college football, and one of the things that happened this week was USA Today published their salary database, and you see Nick Saban's now the second highest paid coach, and you've seen some wailing and gnashing of teeth about how much money these guys are getting paid. You know, Harbaugh is at about nine million. Nick Saban is uh, he's at seven, six and a half, seven, but some of that's been moved off the books by an NCAA statute. You know, I feel like he in Nick Saban's case. I'll just speak to Nick Saban. I'm not as fluent with Jim Harbaugh's situation, but in Nick Saban's case, he's almost underpaid given what he's done, and you know how much money he's given, like he's brought to the university. Even if you look at stuff like national merit enrollees and continued explosions and enrollment, you know, what are you? Is Nick Saban underpaid, even though he's making so much money? Fish? Absolutely. Um, now let's say, you know, let's look at this from a compensation standpoint. Um, you know, he he gets a half a million dollar bonus uh, for winning the national championship. He gets two hundred fifty thousand dollar bonus throwing in the SEC. So those those numbers get skewed a little bit based on what he's getting paid on paper. But that being said, I don't, you know, necessarily, you know, knock 
Michigan for, for giving Harbaugh the money that they've given him. You know, based on what he's done, he took over, you know, a dumpster fire. I liken it to, you know, Saban coming to Alabama in 2007. But that being said, I've always felt like that Nick Saban should get paid $10 million on paper at the University of Alabama for, you know, what he's done. And, you know, you just brought up the other side of it. Uh, all the kids that are coming from out of state that want to come, you know, be a part of the university, um, you know, from an out-of-state standpoint, they're getting all that out-of-state tuition. Um, you know, you look at what the, the athletic department did last year. You know, they generated, I think, $105 million, uh, turned a $48 million profit. Uh, yeah, he's underpaid. And, uh, you know, if, if Michigan's giving Jim Harbaugh $9 million, Alabama needs to give Nick Saban 10 Strong stuff. Uh, you know, w- one more question, Fish, unless I can come up with one off the cuff. One of the things that's been discussed, I know that Ryan Fowler had a guy from Pro Football Focus on his show earlier this week, and the guy from Pro Football Focus said this Alabama team – is his talent is the most talented team since that 2001 Miami squad where basically everybody was a first or second round draft pick. And that dovetails into the conversation that's really spun up that this might be Alabama's best team ever, or Nick Saban's best team ever. I realize it's only eight games in, you know, we ha- and you are comparing eight games to full seasons. But where do you stand on that debate? Do you think this is Alabama's best team ever, or what's your thought process? Well, my thought, my thought process on it is this. You know, from talking to a current coach on the Alabama staff, this was back in the summer of 2015. Um, you know, he, he made the comment to me. He said, listen, with what we have off campus now, with what's coming in, you know, the, the 2016 class, which, you know, that's Jalen Hurts, Jonah Williams, they're already on campus. And what we've got lined up for the 2017 class, which is, you know, Najee Harris, you know, those guys. If we don't win two national championships, because they did not expect to win the one last year. They, they really didn't. But what they were focusing on was, you know, 16 through 19. If we don't win two national championships from 16 to 19, we should all be fired. Well, that's, that's some kind of strong stuff. And uh, if you don't mind me saying, I think this could end up being Nick Saban's best team ever. And I, I, I've said a few times, should Alabama run the table and go 15 and 0, first team to do that? I think I think the debate that Fish, you and I, and Drew will have come the second week of January, second or third week of January, is is this the greatest college football team ever? Because I think then you the argument shifts from that 95 Nebraska team that annihilated everybody, as well as that 2001 Miami squad, and you have to add you know, 16, 17, Alabama. But 
I mean, a little premature, but it's a bye week. It's fun to fun to chatter about what what could possibly be. But fish, you know, I did I did think of one more question, and I apologize, but I keep. I no, keep... you you give me all the questions you want. I don't care. <laughs> it's like you like talking about football or something. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> Just a little bit. No, but. You know, we're talking about Alabama. We're talking about coaching staff change. We're talking about Lane Kiffin pushing buttons. And you know, how would you grade you know Lane Kiffin this season? Yeah, you, know, th- you know, we talked about this a little bit before about how he's had to introduce chunks. Actually, yeah, how he's had to just introduce chunks of the playbook to Jalen Hurts as a true freshman. I feel like this season is Lane Kiffin's virtuoso performance. I think what he's doing is nothing short of astonishing. But, you know, talk me off the ledge. Tell me I'm wrong. Where do you stand on what Lane Kiffin has done this year, even compared to the past two years? I think it's phenomenal, Thomas. And, you know, I'm so guilty of, of looking forward to the next year. Um, you know, I, I do it when I watch Alabama games. The the reason I record the games, you know, it isn't to watch, you know, Reuben Foster make 10 tackles or, you know, John Allen, you know, do the Superman, you know, sack. It's because I want to see, you know, especially the way, you know, Alabama has won their games, you get to see the next wave of Alabama players um, and how they perform when they get into games. And, you know, the the thing that, that sticks out to me, um, you know, going back to my freshman year in 1989, uh, you know, with Homer Smith, you know, unfortunately under Bill Curry. And, you know, I, I sat out there and I watched, you know, Homer Smith score 70 points every time, uh, you know, we had a scrimmage. And, you know, I go forward to, you know, what Lane Kiffin is doing now with Jalen Hurts. Um, You know, I can't speculate on what's going to happen with Lane um, after, you know, January. Is he going to, you know, go back to California and put his family back together? Is he going to, you know, take the job at Fresno State? You know, I don't know any of that stuff. But what what really strikes me is – if, if you're an Alabama fan and you look at this realistically, this is what you're looking at, um, especially with, with Lester Cotton, you know, factoring in at right guard. Uh, you're going to lose Lester, I mean, uh, uh, Cam Robinson, a left guard, I mean, a right left tackle. You're going to lose O.J. Howard, and that's it off of this offense. So if you're Lane Kiffin, and you're kind of on the fence of what you want to do. Um, and, and you know that you're returning nine starters out of 11 next year. Whether, you know, Lane chooses to grab the horns and, and you know, make that his deal, his Waterloo, um, I think next year Alabama could score a 70 points on whoever they play. And, you know, people say, well, you know, what about Jalen Hurts and his, you know, 
deep down, you know, passing in efforts. I'm like, who cares? I don't care if he completes a pass a game. If you look at that last play against Texas A&M where he ran the football, that is big-time college football, and that's what it's all about. Well, that's a heck of a way to end the segment, Fish. Uh, I really appreciate your time this evening. Uh, I realize we don't have a game to talk about yet. That'll be next week. But, no, uh, great stuff and always appreciate your time. Thanks, buddy. Good luck, Thomas. Thanks, Fish. Have a good evening. That was William Redfish Barger doing his normal hour-ish with us. Uh, I cut him off a little bit early because, quite honestly, I was out of questions. I thought I think we covered a lot. And uh, I will say I'm going to take our break real quick, a little bit early, but we're going to play some audio during hour number two. We're going to have John Garcia and uh, some stuff from Ryan Fowler and Drew DeArmond. I will say if you've been listening live and you want to talk to me, give me your take or give listening just, just a chat. Give us a holler at 714-510-3707. I have some open lines, and we can talk about Bama football, A&M, et cetera, et cetera. The floor would be yours. But having said all of that, I'm going to take our first, our our one and only, not our first, but uh, our one and only long break for the evening, and uh, we will be back for hour number two of BAMS Radio.
And we are back for the beginning of hour number two of BAMS Radio. I'd like to apologize to our listeners. I didn't realize that uh, Alafreakin' Bama came through at, you know, only slightly less than uh, jet engine volume. So uh, I consider myself uh, chastised as the producer. But I have a caller. Yes, I have convinced someone to call the radio station, the internet radio station, and talk about Alabama football. The world is continuing to spin, and in fact, it's coming up crimson. So I'm going to go on and welcome Bubba to the program. Bubba, how you doing this evening? Doing good, doing good, considering we don't have a game this weekend. That's a little depressing besides that. Everything. Yeah, I, I, per- I don't know about you, but I could use the breather. You know, it's been eight, eight hard weeks, and I'm kind of ready to take a deep breath before that next plunge. Yeah, I need I need to rest my emotions. You know, if I'm not screaming at the TV, if a kicker misses a kick, or you know somebody misses a tackle in the backfield, or something like that. You know, as fans, sometimes we look for perfection and we shouldn't be. But um, but no, I, I'm excited already about the LSU game. I mean, I was excited for it anyway, and then all of a sudden I hear their players are kind of you know starting to talk some trash, and I'm like, my gracious. So, but I, I'm kind of excited because I'm curious to see. I'm wondering if Lane Kiffin will expand the offense. You know, because they talk about with Jalen, they've obviously started off kind of slow, brought him along slow, which is good. And I'm curious with the extra week, uh, would they just basically just try to perfect everything that he already knows, or would they expand the playbook a little bit? I would obviously think the latter. I was just curious about what you thought they might do. Well, I think that something that needs to be said about Jalen Hurts, and it needs to be said several hundred times, is he is a true freshman, and football is a game of repetition. So, you know, as if you look at his body of work, he's gaining chunks of reps by leaps and bounds. But this bye week is the first time where Alabama hasn't been in the majority of, you know, game plan, game plan, prepare, install because Jalen Hurts was not the starting quarterback. Even, you know, you could argue he didn't really lock up the job until Ole Miss, because you remember you did see Blake Barnett on occasion those first couple of weeks. So this is the first time where if there's something that needs to get tweaked, this is really his first best opportunity so far. I I think that Jalen Hurts is a special young man. I think he's proven that being able to handle everything that's been thrown at him so far. And I do expect him to take a step forward, understanding a little bit more of the playbook. Now, I don't know how much more Lane Kiffin's going to open up the offense. I think that Alabama's offense is at that point of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Because if you look at the first eight weeks of the season, Alabama has run on everybody. Now, I know LSU has a super talented defense, super talented team, but until LSU proves that they can decisively stop this Alabama rushing attack, which would be a deviation from the norm, I'm not sure Lane Kiffin upsets the apple cart. Now, I will say it's going to be interesting to see as LSU tries to adjust to what Alabama does offensively, should Jalen Hurts be able to hit some of those deep passes? Because I personally think if, if that starts happening where Alabama can go vertical, can hit some downfield stuff, this offense is nearly unstoppable. It's just there, there's no way you can defend everywhere that Lane Kiffin will want, will direct Jalen Hurts to attack. So to answer your question slash give you my thoughts on that, I expect Hurts to take a couple of steps forward. 
I think he'll continue to gain comfort and add bits to the playbook, but I don't know how much of that we'll see. I think what you see is what you get right now, but the stuff that we have seen is going to be crisper. It's going to be smoother, and you're going to avoid some of those points where you're watching the offense and you're blown away that it looks great, but then the next series you're left scratching your head. So I expect some more consistency as opposed to more just crazy explosive plays from Jalen Hurts, if that makes and that, sense. And that, sure, and, and for me, that would be fantastic. Um, but I, I really think that Jalen is going to improve. I mean, we've all seen what he's done in his first you know, eight games of the season. I mean, he looks like he's hungry to learn. And so I don't really have any doubt that the passes will start falling. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe in 2011 when A.J. was a starter, his throws didn't really come around to the very end of the season. I think it'll probably be the same for Jalen Hurts. But back to your point about LSU being able to prove they could stop the run, I guess I remember Fish was on last week and he was talking about um, when you run the ball, you know, too much, you know, it becomes, you know, they can start loading the box. So last week in the A&M in the red zone, he was, you know, Lane Kiffin to throw the ball, you know, little different routes and stuff like that. And, of course, as fans, we become impatient. We're screaming, hey, run the ball, Lane, run the ball. But at the same time, I can understand Lane wanting to really keep this offense, you know, unpredictable. You know, keep it a guessing game. Jalen worked on his red zone offense where you're not just pounding in every time to where you've got the defense guessing that you might throw a little swing pass or a wheel right out of the backfield or something of that nature. That way, you can pound it in the end zone whenever you can. So, um, yeah, I – I'm excited about it. I, I think Jalen's really going to improve, um, and I'm just excited to see what's going to happen after the off week. But I feel like LSU, with their talent, they've got a lot of talent like we do. There's going to be a good challenge. It's going to be in their stadium tonight. We all know who tough that is. So, yeah, I, I'm excited to see, and I think, I think it's only going to get better. No, I agree, and something that, you didn't say when we were talking, you mentioned the A and Alabama struggling in the red zone against A&M inside the twenties, the field shrinks. It's that's just the nature of the beast. So some of those wide open rushing lanes, which was, you saw Damian Harris get his 30 yard, you know, chunk plays or Jalen hurts that 45 yard scramble touchdown. Those are not going to happen as often. I mean, obviously aside from the fact that they're not 45 yards or 30 yards going in, but there's less space for a defense. There's less space a defense has to cover. So, I mean, I wouldn't be too worried about the red zone stuff. And, again, just to repeat your point, and I think it does bear repeating, Bubba, nobody has stopped this Alabama rushing attack with any modicum of consistency. And, yes, LSU is very talented. But at this point, I'm a big believer in – past experience predicting future behavior and it would be a deviation from the norm for this LSU defense to stonewall the Alabama rushing offense so I mean I think it's you know we'll talk a lot more about LSU next week obviously going into the game but I I think Alabama is continuing to improve and I think they will be able to run on LSU and you know, playing off the uh, the trash talk points you brought up, I think the guy's name is Dwayne Thomas. I had to look that up because I refused to learn this person's name because he's not relevant <laughs> to me. But, you know, 
if if that starts going the other way, where Al, where Al, where LSU's defense starts getting dominated, this could get out of hand really fast. Because you know, talking about LSU, I'll, I'll do a little preview since you brought it up. LSU runs a pro style attack. It's the the thing that drives me bonkers about what people say about LSU is, oh, they're so much different from when between Les Miles and Ed Orgeron. They're not that different. They're doing the same stuff. And pro-style attacks have been Alabama's bread and butter. Alabama's just eaten them alive. The only pro-style attack that Alabama has lost to in the past, what, call it five years, was the 9-6 game against LSU, the number one versus number two game. That LSU team was more talented than this one. And that Alabama team was debatably less talented than this one. So, I mean, it's just, if styles make fights, and I know you listen to Two Deep Zone, so you are scheme team, so you have heard that before. If styles make fights, the style does not bode well for this LSU Tigers team. But that's all I'm going to say a week and a half out. (laughs) Yes. You know, it reminds me of last year also. Alabama had come off that loss to Ole Miss. And a lot of people were really worried about the team, and I was one up. And, you know, you just concerned. But I remember they went in and just blasted Georgia. And I remember after the game I was watching, I believe it was ESPN, or, and Desmond Howard was on there going, where are all these people that said that Georgia was going to win this game? Don't they know Nick Saban has built to stop teams like this? Nobody that plays this style can beat Nick Saban in Alabama. And, of course, that's what started that run to the national championship. So, yeah, that's, that's a great point you bring up, Thomas, the fact that, unfortunately for LSU, they play a style that plays right into Dick Saban's hands. The guys played it last year and held Leonard Fournette to a ridiculous low 30-something yards, I believe. It was just un- 31 on 19 carries. It never was saw that coming. <laughs> I never saw that coming. And the fact that, it's, and of course, everybody's saying, this guy's going to come out with something to prove. And that's fantastic. But at the same time, back to the trash talking again, once you get our guys fired up, and they're going to hear it all week. They're going to hear it next week, too. This guy's going to run all over you. He's going to want you. And uh, it's, it's going to be fun to watch. And I think something else, obviously, that you could touch on is the Eddie Jackson injury. Um, what's going to happen from there? And – how is that going to – will that hurt the running game any? I know he helped run support, but, I mean, or is, will it be down the line before we notice that injury? Well, you know, Fish and I talked about this in the first hour, but I would argue, and I, I made the argument to Redfish, and he, he, he said very similar things. The, the point that's going to be very interesting is how the dime look, the dime defense changes. Early reports are Hootie Jones is taking Eddie Jackson's spot, and Tony Brown has become the dimeback. Uh, I think it's the money position, what Alabama called it in their defense. So that's two new parts. But the thing is, the Crimson Tide are not going to play much dime against LSU. Put it to you this way, Bubba. If Tony Brown sees the field as the dimeback against the LSU Tigers, Alabama's up by a couple of scores, and LSU has to throw the ball and put a bunch of receivers out in patterns to come back. So I would argue that the only time you'll see a Tony Brown is if Alabama's up by a couple of scores. Now, the other practice reports that I've read 
Hootie Jones is taking over for Eddie Jackson one-to-one, just straight up in nickel and in base. And it's hard to predict how that's going to change things. I mean, Eddie Jackson was a fantastic safety, but there is a fantastic safety. I don't want to make him sound like he's just fallen off the face of the Crimson Tide planet. But, But there are a lot of guys there that can take over, that can take over that spot and at least do a serviceable job. Is it unfortunate that Eddie Jackson got hurt? Certainly. You know, it, 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 losing a guy for the season is just – it stinks. Not a fun thing at all. But there are guys that can step up and take the spot. Do I think that Hootie Jones will have some growing pains in base and nickel and in dime? Yeah, I think he will have some growing pains, and I think Alabama might give up some plays because of it. But do I think that this Alabama defense is suddenly going to start falling on their face against an LSU or against an Auburn? No, I don't think that at all. I, I'm there. There's enough talent around him to where I think he can cover any deficiencies. Like they can cover any perceived deficiencies with Hootie Jones. I would not be worried about that as much. Yeah, and and you know I think I believe it was Drew that also brought up. Um, yeah, Drew on the show anyway. <laughs> I think he had brought up that. The year Vinny Sinceri got hurt, it didn't really show up to the end of the season. But at the same time, I was thinking, of course, this is a different position. I remember, I believe it was um, Dante Hightower. I believe he tore an ACL or something um, mid to late mid-season or something like that. And they had to bring in. He he tore ACL, MCL against Arkansas in 2010. Exactly. Yeah, and we had to bring in some backups then, too. So. Like you said, there's plenty of talent, a lot of young talent that's ready to step up and play. And, and for some reason, I'm just not as concerned about the outcome because our our pass rush, to me, is going to help alleviate what Eddie Jackson did in the backfield. The, the guys up front are getting such unbelievable pressure, and that's before Jeremy Pruitt starts calling all these blitzes. It's just – it is unreal. So you've got guys not having to cover as long or as much and I think that's really going to help out. So, But, again, as the season goes on, like you said, against you know a Mississippi State or, an, of course, Mississippi State, my gracious. But like in Auburn, that will be more of a where we look to see how that is. And that's several games down the line. So that gives us plenty of time to get some guys worked in and get a rhythm going. So, I mean, I'm, you know, I think that's going to be okay myself. So we'll see what happens. I mean, I should let you host the show. You're ready to rock and roll, Bubba. <laughs> well, well, the other thing I could think of off the top of my head was, you know, I hate the, I don't know, the, the, the kicker, God love him. He just has the ups and downs. You know, with, without him last year, you know, I don't think we win a national championship. But my gracious, he's missed some this year that just leaves you scratching your head. And I remember when the kid came out of high school, he was such a – you know, a coveted kicker. People talked about how good he was. If I'm not mistaken, it was a story that they were playing for the the state championship in Georgia, I believe it was, and they went into overtime. I think I've heard the story right. And the other team failed to make their field goal. Well, his team started cheating, and on first down, they sent the kid out to hit the field goal. That's how much confidence they had him. And I remember hearing that story thinking, my gracious. But And the kid's definitely got the leg if he can just kind of get everything straightened out and get his kicking motion fluid, that's just another weapon you add to an offense that can put a lot of points on the board and go up and down the field, you know, with our running game. Because 
the way the offensive line's playing right now, and that's, that's something else. I missed the first half of the show, so I apologize. I'm sure you and Fish talked about it, a lot of stuff. It's okay. But, if, um, if you listen, was, you can call in and you can talk about whatever you like. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was thinking, you know, Shane Taylor, I don't think he's played, but, you know, from, from what I've heard from a lot of people, Lester Cotton has what they say more of an upside. And when, since he's been playing, the running game on the right side has just been – there's been holes everywhere for our running backs to run through. So it's one of those things that you bring back Shane Taylor that started 15 games last year for a national championship – or do you leave Lester Cotton in and don't mess with the chemistry and keep pounding away? Um, did, did Fish say anything about that? We didn't talk about that uh, the, during the first hour, but uh, I will say that is going to be an open question. Um, yeah. I, I, it's, and I will, but the thing is, in this case and in several others, you know, Alabama fans are kind of, you know, you know clutching their pearls or getting nervous about it. I think Lester Cotton does have a higher upside than Shank Taylor, but like you said, Shank Taylor's got the experience. So in either case, you're getting a solid to excellent player. So I, I wouldn't be worried about it, honestly. And who knows? I, I personally think given how uh, the offense has looked, I wouldn't mess with a good thing. You know, if I was being paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to coach football, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But it remains to be seen. You know, they, the, the, I, let me put it to you like this, Bubba. I have absolute faith in Brent Key and Lane Kiffin and all the offensive coaches, as well as Nick Saban, obviously, to make the right choice for to get the Crimson Tide into the spot they need to be in to be successful. And, and, that's, and that's, yeah, I agree. Like, like, like you said, the guys have done this before. They know what they're doing. The off week has come at a better time. I hate that we lost Gabe, but at the same time, we've got enough time, an extra week, to get guys where they need to be on the offensive line and in the secondary um, to put together, to, to get ready to finish the season strong. Of course, everybody looks at LSU and Auburn that has um, really come on in the second half of the season. But I really believe that our coaches will get everybody right and, and where they need to be. And then also in the punt return game, I'm not sure if y'all covered that either, but uh, there's so much talent that we've got on our team, and I guess one thing you look at is I'm sure Nick Saban's going to look. For somebody to field punt, somebody that's going to secure the ball. Obviously, you want somebody to put their feet on the 10-yard line, and if it goes over their head, let it go. Uh, if it comes in front of them, just make the catch. And, you know, only when you've got a wide-open field, then you can try to make a return. But I'm really curious to see who's going to get, you know, that spot because I think that Darius Stewart is what I think just because of ball security. But then I also think of a Trevon Diggs, who, from what I've heard and what little bit we've seen, the kid is just ultra-talented. So you kind of want to see him with the ball in his hands just to see what he could do. But so much talent, so, you know, just so much to work with. It's just it's kind of exciting for the second half of the season to get here and see which way this team goes. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. I agree. I, 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 I don't mean to say I have nothing to add, but you synopsized it excellently. <laughs> well, good. Well, listen, Thomas, yep. I appreciate you taking my call, man. I'm going to let you go now. And uh, I look yep. forward to talking to you soon, my friend. Absolutely. Thanks for calling in, Bubba. Have a good evening. You too, man. That was uh, a caller, Bubba, breaking down Alabama better than I ever could. So, you know, I, I got to watch out for my job. That's all I know now. 
but you know, if you want to jump in, uh, the number seven one four five one zero three seven zero seven, and we can talk ball, talk about whatever you like, and uh, the time is yours. But since I have open lines, I am going to play a little bit of audio. Even though Drew DeArmond, our other host, is busy covering uh, high school football up in Huntsville, he was nice enough to send me an interview he did with Ryan Fowler talking about this Crimson Tide football team. I will say it's about a half hour long, so if you've already heard it and you want to skip ahead, you're not going to offend me if you choose to do that. But this is Ryan Fowler and Drew DeArmond talking Alabama Crimson Tide. Drew DeArman, how are you, my friend? Welcome into the Alabama Crimson Tide podcast here on SCCCountry.com. Great to be with you, Ryan. I've been on your daily radio program, the game, quite a bit. And uh, and, uh, I always enjoy being on, and uh, it's great to be on. No doubt, no doubt. And and as we continue this conversation, Drew, uh, we're looking at this Alabama football team here uh, for just a couple of minutes. Let's go back to Alabama, Texas A&M. You and I were inside that press box, and I'd love to hear your biggest takeaway from Alabama and Texas A&M. Well, I think uh, the team showed a lot of toughness uh, in beating, I think, a quality opponent, a, t- a top 15 team uh, nationally, uh, no question about that. I mean, uh, they're a multifaceted group. They run a lot of RPOs on offense, and I thought this Alabama defense, you know, they had a little lull uh, near the end of the uh, second quarter into the third, but uh, you know, when you play a quality opponent, uh, it's going to, you know, happen that way. Sometimes they're going to make plays. Uh, but I think uh, Alabama uh, did a nice job of adjusting on the fly and uh, and really uh, containing a, uh, a Trevor Knight, a, a dual-threat QB, and really a really good wide receiver group uh, at Texas A&M that rivals Ole Miss's, except for A&M has better running backs. But I still thought Alabama – Yet again, as they've done all year, they did a great job of making an offense one-dimensional and, uh, and uh, shutting down the Aggie running game and really uh, making Trevor Knight beat them. And it's going to be tough to throw over the top of this Alabama defense because they're so fast. And as we're seeing, they've already got, I believe, 32 sacks, Brian. They uh, led the nation last year, I think, with 52, and they're on pace to, to break that. So this, this, this defense – it's really aggressive under Jeremy Pruitt. They like to blitz, like to wreak havoc. It's not more. It used to be more read and react under Nick Saban, uh, but right now I really like where this uh, defense is and where it's going. I think it's by far uh, the best in college football. Well, you know, going back to that for a couple of minutes here with Jeremy Pruitt, and and, and going back to talk about some things that you and I talked about throughout the summer. This is a better, aggressive, more aggressive defensive unit. I know they've got the skills, they've got the players, but overall this team is more aggressive, and they're not calling plays a nanosecond or adjusting a play a nanosecond before the ball snapped. No, they're not. They're just playing. Uh, they're playing fast. That's what Jeremy Pruitt wants them to do. He wants them to be confident uh, in what they're doing. And the one thing that I think has improved also, uh, you know, Nick Davis' teams have always been sound on defense, but I think the tackling, uh, has been improved this year, the open field tackling. You didn't see A&M make a lot of plays after the catch. You didn't see Ole Miss do a lot of that, or even Arkansas. The thing that they have given up, they have uh, given up some vertical plays uh, down the field, but they cut that out against Texas A&M for the most part, except for maybe the Christian Kirk touchdown pass. But that was perfectly thrown by Trevor Knight. But honestly, that's the only thing that's going to beat this Alabama defense as far as uh, their ability uh, for you to get big plays. You have to execute 
uh, the vertical passing game to perfection uh, because really honestly, uh, the, you know, the secondary is taking a little bit of heat. But if you look, Ryan, there hasn't been a whole lot of butt. You know, they, they've had a few, but mostly it's just been perfect throws, and that's what it takes to beat this team. Drew, I want to talk about Jonathan Allen. When I go back to Nick Saban yesterday, he was asked the question about the Heisman candidate. Is it fair to put him in the conversation? Let's talk about Jonathan Allen for a couple of minutes. Uh, a young man that has been a lot to this program. Uh, looking at Jonathan Allen, in your thoughts, is it fair to put him in the Heisman conversation? Jonathan Allen, yeah, I, I think definitely he should be in the conversation uh, for the Heisman. I mean, look, he's, he's kind of like Charles Woodson when he was at Michigan, when they started letting him play both ways, play wide receiver uh, and return punt. You look at John Allen, he's not playing on offense. But he's already scored you know, two non-offensive touchdowns on a scoop and score and what looked like an interception that was later changed to a fumble recovery against Ole Miss. And both of those ended up being um, game-changing and really game-stealing play. Think about it. Uh, because the Ole Miss uh, touchdown ended up being needed because they won that game 48-43. And then uh, Coach Nick Saban said after the game, Ryan, you and I were in the post game that that scoop and score was the biggest play in the game because it extended Alabama's lead, lead to two touchdowns and really demoralized Texas A&M. When you look at Jonathan Allen, he's already got six sacks on the season. He's the SEC Defensive Player of the Week. Uh, and, and when you're being compared to Indomitian Sue, who is one of the more dominant uh, defensive linemen in the history of college football and who finished second in the Heisman voting himself, I don't think there's any doubt uh, that the senior Jonathan Allen should be. Uh, I don't know. I've seen a couple people mention him in the top five. I don't know if it's going to be that high, but he definitely deserves to be in the top ten. And who knows? If he reaches the end zone a couple more times, this Alabama team continues to be dominant. Uh, maybe this is the year uh, that he could be invited uh, to uh, New York City, but we'll just have to see. Well, Drew, you, you go back to it for a couple of minutes, and you talked about uh, Sue there for a couple of minutes. He actually tweeted out yesterday, he said, don't, you know, disrespect a defensive lineman as far as a Heisman possibility. So you even see in a fellow defensive lineman get, you know, support another defensive lineman. But, you know, you think about the money. And and I know that uh, people are going to go off the deep end when I, when I say this because they're, they're going to misinterpret what I'm trying to say. How much money has this guy made from coming back for his senior year because last year's NFL talent was tons in that defensive line. Tons. When guys like Ashawn Roberts and Jaron Reed fall a little bit, you know what Jonathan Allen would have fell a little bit. You think about the millions of dollars that he has made coming back to Alabama for his senior year. Yeah, I mean, there's no question about it. Uh, he was a borderline first-round pick to come out last year, Ryan. Some thought he would have gone in the latter half of the first round, You know, which means he would have gone to a playoff-caliber team most likely. But now coming back, uh, see, a lot of the projections have him going in the top five. Uh, and really, and quite uh, in all honesty, uh, the two best defensive linemen I've seen this year are Jonathan Allen and Derek Barnett. The only difference is when you're looking at uh, John Allen, he can play both inside and out and can be a terror in a four-man front at defensive tackle or play a 3-4 in. He's the total package. Uh, he uses his hands better than anyone. He can rush the pass or he can stop the run. 
I've, I've said he's the best all-around defensive lineman I've seen in Alabama since John Copeland, who went in the top ten to Cincinnati and had a long career with the Bengals uh, on the 92 National Championship team at Alabama. But at the trajectory he's going, uh, he's going to have a chance to be even better. And if that's the case, you're talking about, again, a top-five pick and someone that's going to just bank uh, tens of millions of dollars uh, that, that he wouldn't have if he had not come back to school. And now he's much healthier. As you know, Ryan, he had two bad shoulders last year, even though he did uh, pick up 12 and a half sacks and have an outstanding season. We are talking right now to Drew DeArmond does a daily radio program on 97.7 The Zone in Huntsville. We're talking Alabama football for a couple of minutes. Let's let's talk about Ryan Anderson here for a couple of minutes. And I know this is not the midpoint of the season. It's not. Uh, it's eight games into the schedule, but this is the break, and it gives us a chance to reflect on what Alabama's been able to do. Is Ron Anderson the unsung hero here on this football team? There's no question about it. He's the best all-around linebacker on the Alabama football team. He sets the edge. He's going to be very important going to red stick against LSU. He also has four and a half sacks. He can drop in coverage. He can do just about anything you want. I think that he and Sean Dion Hamilton and his development at Will Linebacker has really taken this defense to an elite level because you already knew what you had coming into the season with Reuben Foster, with Jonathan Allen, even Dalvin Tomlinson uh, in, uh, in that group. Uh, you felt like you felt pretty good going in that Alabama was going to have a really good group uh, at defensive line, maybe not as deep, but still very, very solid. And Deron Payne has been – as good as any, I think, interior defensive lineman in the country. But no question about it, Ryan Anderson is a clue guy. He does everything well. Now, he may not have the measurables of some like as far as, his, his, you know, one of his former position coaches who's now at South Carolina didn't play him at Alabama, claimed he had short arms. Well, his arms may be short, and he may not run the 40 as fast as some. He's a very intelligent football player. Uh, and he can play he, he, all around. He can do anything you want to do. And he's a, and plus he's a great leader. He's just a winner, a very intense guy. And I think when it's all said and done, I've said this, Ryan, he may only, you know, be about a third-round draft choice, perhaps second round. Uh, but he will play a long time in the NFL. He'll play a decade because he does everything well. He can even be moved to an inside backer in the pros. But I think he runs well enough where he can be a 3-4 outside linebacker, a la James Harrison and have a great career. Drew, as, as we continue, let's stop off here from, from Reuben Foster and, and, and spend some time here talking about him. Uh, when you look at Reuben Foster, sideline to sideline guy, a guy that can help you on run, but the, the hits are intimidating for Reuben Foster. And, and I think they, the backs and the skill position guys, uh, you've got to find out where Reuben Foster is on the football field because you know he's going to lay the lumber. Oh, he is. There is no question about it. He's already got 53 tackles on this football team, Ryan. I will, I will go on record as saying this, and I've said it before. He had it when he was a freshman and sophomore at Troop County High School in Georgia. The best inside linebacker film I had ever seen. He was tremendous. And it took us, you know, two-plus seasons before he started settling in at Will last year. And now is at the mic. He is amazing. There is no question about it. Uh, he. He's a heat-seek missile, and now that he knows the defense and is comfortable, he's even gotten really good at pass coverage and dropping, and he's very athletic, and he's really a three-down linebacker. You know, I never thought I would say this because I was always so enamored with C.J. Mosley and how he developed in Alabama, but 
if Reuben Foster is the best inside linebacker of the Nick Saban era. He has truly become a dominant force. I think he's the best linebacker in college football. And the biggest thing he is, is he's an alpha dog, and he is the, the heart and soul of this Alabama defense as far as being a leader and just being the guy that all the, the, the players look to for leadership. He and Jonathan Allen and now the injured Eddie Jackson are the three uh, guys that have been uh, the leaders for this defense and the reason they're the best in college football. When you look at this secondary, Eddie Jackson going down with an injury, how do you think this secondary responds? It's going to be very interesting. You know, Eddie was the leader of the group. You know, as Marlon Humphrey said following the Texas A&M game, he was the one that kind of put together the players-only meeting and laid down the ball after what he felt like was a subpar performance against Arkansas despite Minka, uh, Minka Fitzpatrick's three interceptions and being the National Defensive Player of the Week and see back 108 yards. He just felt like the standard, uh, what they didn't play to what they uh, to their ability. Uh, and, you know, and it's going to be interesting. I think that uh, Eddie also is leading the nation in punt returns, taking two to the house, averaging uh, 25 yards per return. So you lose something on special teams as well. But, you know, I hearken back to 2012. Uh, this Alabama football team lost five guys to ACL, uh, you know, and, and, you know, were able to replace them all. They were role players, but they were still talented guys, and they overcame that. And then Vinny Sunseri was lost to them in 2013, much like Eddie, and had a great first half of the season and was, and uh, they were able to, uh, you know, uh, continue to play at a high level until, you know, the, uh, they, they did not finish the Auburn game. But they, the one thing I'll say, if it, since this injury, when it occurred, it, it was at the perfect time with Alabama's bye week coming up. Uh, I think they're going to move Mika Fitzpatrick uh, to free safety. Uh, and I think he has the talent and the ability to play the position. He is a ball hawk like Eddie. Uh, but the key is going to be Tony Brown. And, Alabama's probably the only team in college football that could replace an Eddie Jackson with another five-star athlete in Tony Brown, who really probably has better tools than Eddie Jackson. But is he going to learn, uh, be the student of the game that Eddie was? And is he going to, uh, you know, step up and, uh, and play up to his potential and earn the trust of the coaching staff? If he does, this secondary can still be elite, Ryan, uh, but it's not because then they're going to have to look, turn to some other young players like Cheyenne Carter, and it could be an issue for Alabama. But, you know, they always talk about rewriting an ending. Tony Brown has had a tumultuous uh, two-and-a-half-plus uh, years at Alabama, including missing the first four games this year due to suspension by the NCAA. He has a chance to rewrite everything now. This is a golden opportunity, and it's going to be fascinating to see how it all plays out and to see, you know, what Alabama does. Uh, it's punt return. You know, we've had this, this freshman class for Alabama is supremely talented. We've had so many great players uh, so far that have stepped up, like a Jalen Hurts, like a Joshua Jacobs. Could Trevon Diggs be the next one uh, at punt returner for Alabama? And I guess we'll see in the coming days. And no doubt uh, that'll be something that we watch. Mika Fitzpatrick slotting back there yesterday during some of the viewing period. Uh, Nick Saban refusing to say that that was permanent, uh, that they were going to experiment, and we'll see where they go forward uh, with that safety position. Let me go to the offensive side of the football as we sort of give some evaluations. Could anybody have dreamed up what Jalen Hurts has been able to accomplish? And I know there's some areas that he needs to improve upon, but we're looking at this, like I said, it's not the midpoint, it's not the halfway, but it's eight games into a 12-game regular schedule. This is the break. Let's go back and evaluate Jalen Hurts so far this season. 
Well, I, I think you'd have to give Jalen Hurts an A minus. And the only reason I say minus is because he has had the inability to hit on the deep throw. He has thrown five interceptions, but at the same time, Ryan, he's thrown 11 touchdowns, 1,500-plus passing yards, over 60% completion percentage, and the biggest thing, over 500 rushing yards and nine touchdowns. And he's responded in situations. Uh, when, when the situation seemed the most dire, when Alabama uh, was down at 24-3 to Ole Miss, uh, he brought the team back, got them back in the game, and played an outstanding second half in a just a raucous environment, the largest crowd to ever see a game in the state of Mississippi. Uh, he's already gone to Arkansas and performed very well uh, and, and gone toe-to-toe with a very talented quarterback uh, in Austin Allen, uh, no question about it. And now he outperforms Trevor Knight, who only went 14 of 31 uh, for Texas A&M. So he's, I, I just, and yeah, I thought his best performance, quite frankly, may have been in Knoxville, Tennessee. I know I think Tennessee was banged up. I and I think uh, overrated, but still, when you help quarterback a 49-10 to beatdown of a team that many thought uh, was a, a slam-dunk top-10 team the week before, uh, he's just been amazing. And uh, a lot of people are talking about how he's never seen an environment like Red Stick and Baton Rouge, but I'm not worried about Jalen Ernest going to Baton Rouge. Uh, Alabama's had a lot of success there historically. Uh, he's a lot better football player in my mind than Danny Etling, and I think Alabama – for the rest of the season, is going to have the advantage in the quarterback position. And uh, who would have ever thought that with a true freshman taking all the staff uh, as uh, Jalen Hurts has? Well, you, you look at this running rushing attack that's taken some pressure off of Alabama, and he's a part of that rushing attack. I mean, he's a big asset to Lane Kiffin, and teams have to now guard against this. I mean, it, it's, it's a lot of fun to watch Jalen Hurts perform. But Damian Harris only had 17 carries against Texas A&M but he rushed for 130 yards. This back is now, I think, coming into his zone, and it was good that he got up for the targeting call because I think you and I both uh, were in the press box, and I looked at you and was like, man, that that was nasty. That was a nasty hit, Uh, but he jumped up and and was able to come back in the game. Uh, Damian Harris is really having a very solid sophomore campaign. No question. I mean, he's rushed for nearly 700 yards, Ryan, and averaging eight yards per carry. The amazing thing is he's only reached the end zone one time, but he still put up outstanding numbers. Uh, you know, the only playing time he's missed is the, was the ankle injury against Western Kentucky, which was kind of the uh, break, uh, the uh, or excuse me, against Kent State, which was kind of the uh, coming out party uh, for Joshua Jacobs. Uh, after he missed both of that contest against Kent State, we saw Joshua Jacobs step up, and then uh, Joshua also played well uh, against Kentucky. Uh, so it, it gave Joshua a lot of confidence also. Uh, and, and then when Joshua went down against Arkansas with uh, the elbow injury, Damian Harris stepped back up. Uh, and I just really think, really, uh, that's the part of this football team that's come the farthest uh, in the shortest period of time. I mean, uh, the, the wide receiver group is a strength, and they need to get them more involved the second half of the season. But nobody would have thought, you know, just a couple of months ago, that this running game would be as dominant as it's become because it's, almost a, like a four-headed monster. It's very tough uh, to contain everyone. When you look at the balance, you look at, uh, you know, Damian Harris leads the team with nearly 700 yards, but you got over 500 uh, from uh, from uh, Jalen Hurts, and that's not even – you have to count sack yardage, which I agree with Aaron Settles. You shouldn't have to. And then you look at Joshua Jacobs over 300 yards, and even Bo Scarborough. He still has ball security issues and uh, some mental errors, and he made some this past Saturday. 
but Bo is over 300 yards as well. It's a very, very deep group uh, at running back in this running game for Alabama. And the thing is, it's multifaceted and very hard to defend uh, by opponents. Let's tie it all together here for a couple of minutes. Uh, LSU, is that the toughest game left on this schedule, or could it be the Auburn Tigers? You know, I've thought a lot about this, Ryan. And at the start of the season, I thought Red Stick would be Alabama's toughest uh, challenge, but I'm really starting to think it may be Auburn simply because I think uh, right now they're playing better defense than LSU. I think they have a better defensive front, and they can swap paint with this Alabama offensive line, which is getting better and better uh, as the season goes on. The schedule has set up nicely for Auburn. They got a tired Arkansas team and destroyed them. Now they're getting an Ole Miss team. That uh, looks physically whipped. Yeah, they look physically whipped. They should be able to handle them. We'll see how they handle Georgia uh, down the stretch. Uh, But, uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, this Auburn team, uh, can they handle success? If they can, I think we could see an Iron Bowl where uh, the uh, SEC West, once again, is, uh, you know, at stake. I still think Alabama's the much better football team because I don't think Auburn can throw the ball well enough. I Don't get me wrong, I know Sean White's been efficient, but they only called 11 passes against Arkansas. They didn't have to throw it. Uh, but, you know, again, I think he's still kind of limited in what he can do. And uh, I just think right now the thing that, uh, that what you're impressed with with Auburn is their defensive line. They've done a really good job against the run. And they can rush the passer. They're not Alabama, but they're good. And I think it with, with Alabama, I think Alabama's the best defense in the SEC. And I think Auburn's number two. And the one thing Auburn does have, they have the best kicker in the conference in Daniel Carlson. So right now, I, I, you know, I don't see Auburn beating Alabama uh, on the road. And it's, it's Alabama's uh, it sets up well with the tie having them in Tuscaloosa. But I would say, even though Leonard Burnett is back to his old self and LSU is playing much better. Uh, that right now Auburn uh, stands to be the biggest challenge, but we'll see. We are finishing up our conversation with Drew DeArmond. All right, so now let me put you on the spot. Eight games in, does Alabama win the national title? And and what we've been able to see, are you more confident now? Because you and I talked about this throughout the summer. If there's some things that comes together, Alabama would have a chance to win a national title. Are you more confident now than you were like on August the 28th prior to the start of the season? Oh, no question. I think there's no doubt. I think uh, this has become a multi-dimensional offense. And I think Jalen Hurts, I think they're going to do a lot of self-scouting during this off week and try to get him more confident in the passing game. And I think Alabama, you know, Lane Kiffin, he and Coach Orgeron know each other very well. Coach Orgeron was saying yesterday that he and Lane talked two or three times a week, but now they're going to go on hiatus. But I just think Lane uh, is going to do some, you know, find a, Find some new wrinkles for Jalen to execute. You don't want to add too much for the young guy, but you want to get him comfortable, get him going in the passing game. This running game is very hard to defend. This offensive line, you know, Jonah Williams, uh, the best freshman offensive lineman in America. Then you've got a, and then you got Cam Robinson coming off his best game. I thought he he acquitted himself very well against Miles Garrett. He should be more confident down the stretch. You've got the wide receivers and Ardarius Stewart and Calvin really that can make big plays, and then this defense. It's just going to be very tough uh, to score on Alabama. You know, we, we, I, the only real weakness on this team, and I, and I don't call him a true weakness, I just he's inconsistent. You always have to hold your breath with Adam Griffith. But if you go back and look at his body of work as a kicker over his career, uh, Ryan, he has never cost Alabama a game. 
He's a big reason why they won the 15th national championship, and he's an experienced guy. And I've always felt like if he had to make a kick, and he had to in Red Stick in 2014 to get out of Alabama to overtime, barring any more injuries, and they have to overcome Eddie Jackson, and that's significant. But I think this is the best roster in college football and the best coaching staff. And I want to make special mention of something. There was a lot of consternation and speculation about when Bo Davis left, that the D-line might, uh, the productivity might not be there, and they worried about the, the Great point. Great Paul point. Paul Dunbar. But Paul Dunbar has been, I think, an upgrade. I think the pass rush looks even better. I think when you look at Tosh Lupoy in his second year with these outside linebackers, how much better they're getting. You look at Christian Miller, how much he's improving. And yet, you know, I just think overall – uh, with uh, Jeremy Pruitt, and you bring in his level of aggression defensively. All this Alabama team has to do is stay hungry and focused, and I think they can win the national championship. I think right now they're the best team in America, and that's played itself out through eight games because we saw what happened to Ohio State, and I just don't think Michigan has played near the schedule of Alabama. Alabama's run a no, conflict, uh, no. and, uh, and, they, and, I, and they seem to be continuing to stay focused. I thought they were really – I didn't think they were flat at all against a and They were ready to play. And you know they'll be ready uh, come two weeks, November the 5th, uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Well, Drew, I, I think here's the one thing, and I, I don't know if you would agree, but I think this team from game number one to game number eight has improved. Week by oh, week yeah. by week by week, this team has got better. It has. It really has. And, and Dalen Hurts has gotten more confident uh, in himself and what he's expected. He, and he's had some bumps in the road. But I like the way O.J. Howard got more involved this past week. You put that on film, he catches eight passes for him offensively. You have to account for Calvin Ridley. You know he's going to have another big game, or Darius Stewart. Uh, so I just really think Alabama, with the weapons they have and the way they can run the football, the only, thing, you know, the, I, the only team that can beat Alabama is themselves. If they get sloppy with the ball and have a game where they turn it over three or four times, that could be an issue. Uh, if they even had two turnovers against Texas A&M and yet were able to turn it on. Uh, and win that game by 19. So they've just been really impressive. Uh, and I think, you know, the schedule sets up well down the stretch. They have two tough games, uh, LSU and Auburn. Uh, but I think right now uh, they get LSU coming off a of bye, so they should, they should be well prepared. And then you've got Mississippi State, who's not a very good football team, Chattanooga, one AA program. Uh, so then that should get you ready for Auburn. And uh, with, if the SEC Western Division is at stake, this Alabama team is going to be ready to play. Uh, they remember what happened uh, in 2013 and derailed, and, and they had a chance to win a third straight title, and they did not. So I just think this program. What's remarkable is I, I think it's, these guys are still hungry. Uh, they want to. They want to. They want to be great, and that's what you have to do if you want to win national championships and continue to be a part of the conversation. You, they believe. They. It's no. There's not hope. It's belief, and I think this Alabama team right now knows they can accomplish great things, but they just have to continue to be hungry and grind. All right, Drew, now I'm going to give you a chance to tell the audience here. We've got a uh, a different audience that listens to our daily show uh, compared to your daily show and our podcast here on seccountry.com. Uh, give them a chance to promote what you're involved in. I know you're, you, you do a lot of things uh, there, pretty cool, in the Rocket City. Uh, give a chance for fans to connect with you, obviously, on the Twitter account and then your show. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I, I'm going to cut Drew's uh self-promotion off because I want to get to this last little bit of audio. If you're listening live, this is this is audio is going to take us a little bit beyond what I can run the show. But uh, if you're listening on podcasts, this is about 20 minutes of audio from Drew DeArmond talking to John Garcia. 
John Garcia of BamaMag.com and Scout.com. John, always great to reconnect with you. Good morning. How are you? Cannot complain, Drew. Um, Bama bye week, so we get a chance to, to really dive into recruiting and sort of hit the reset button in tracking that. But as you said before that point, uh, a big weekend that we're still really getting the returns from kids off of a tangible gain with a commitment of a tight end and many, many blue chip prospects, 10 five stars visit, uh, and all of them really came away impressed. Yeah, they really did. And then uh, a commitment comes out of the weekend. Not really a surprise, John. Uh, this had been speculated on for several weeks when he returned uh, uh, for his visit with his family. And that is, of course, Bullard tight end, Major Tennyson, uh, who Bullard, Texas. Uh, he had been a former commit to the Texas Longhorns, had taken a look at Michigan. Uh, but Alabama's program seemed to be a really good fit for him. And he went ahead and went public with his decision. Yeah, the plan for Bama was to take two tight ends for quite some time now. Um, I think a lot of people were surprised when Bama took Kedrick James, the the four-star from Texas, and just like Major Tennyson, another four-star from Texas. But um, the plan, again, was always two all along. And our sources say that Tennyson was Nick Saban's guy. You know, when they first really dug into this board for the class of 2017, it, it was Nick Saban who was, first in line, if you will, um, on the major Tennyson bandwagon. Um, combination guy, um, can play flex, can play in line. Right now, just under six foot five, 228 pounds as of this past weekend. Um, so certainly you expect him to add a little bit of weight. Um, so he's somewhere in between, for me, he's somewhere in between Miller Forrestal and Hale Hentges. I think that'll give Bama fans a little bit of a picture of where this kid is right now and maybe where he could become. So right now, probably closer to Forrestal, a little bit more of a receiving tight end, but the plan is to bulk him up and let him be a true combination guy because obviously after this year, no more O.J. Howard, so Forrestal theoretically replaces him. And then you need some inline guys. Um, you have Irv Smith and Hale Hentges on the roster, and now Tennyson and Kedrick James can factor in in some way, shape, or form. So this is a good situation for Alabama. They want um, – a committee, really, to begin replacing O.J. Howard because athletically you're not going to get somebody who's quite like that. So this makes a lot of sense, and obviously you get another blue-chip guy, another guy from the state of Texas, and a former Texas commitment at that. Um, and, and another big part of this Tennyson commitment, you keep him away from Michigan and LSU, two schools that were really high on him, and, and he reciprocated that interest. But as you said, this was sort of expected for some time. Really, since he decommitted from Texas, Bama's been – in the driver's seat. A lot of people thought it would get done sooner, but obviously uh, once he returned back with his family for those uh, 48 hours that official visits allow, it was going to be tough for any other program um, to get him on their commitment list. And it looks like he will be an early enrollee, which is also going to move up his timetable, John. Yeah, and that's so important. Again, I mean, we talk about it every year, Drew. You're going to start seeing more kids early enroll as opposed to not. That's how big the trend is getting especially at a school like Alabama where you know you have to get in early if you want to play day one I mean look at the guys who are playing considerably as true freshmen right now Jalen Hurts early enrollee Jonah Williams early enrollee I mean it just you can go down the list and it happens every single year regardless of position so you'll see you know out of these 22 commitments right now that Bama has around a dozen are already planning on enrolling early including Tennyson including five stars like Najee Harris and Alex Leatherwood, uh, the quarterbacks are trying to do it. So 
the priority positions and guys who are, are done so much sooner, this has become a target. You know, you want to get in early. Even if you don't play, you want to get in early so you can get acclimated to college football, to going to class, you know, being without your family, things like that. So it's really a win-win for everybody. And the only thing you lose as a kid is, you know, your senior prom. But let's be honest, Drew, a lot of these kids have been highly touted high school prospects for such a long time that they've already received most of the perks uh, that they're going to receive in high school. So missing out on something like prom is, is not as big of a deal as, as maybe it once seemed like it was. Well, and speaking of perks and not being able to now kind of take part in that, unfortunately there was a situation uh, that came to light with Vandarius Cowan, who's been a, a committed to Alabama now for several months since flipping from Florida State uh, from Winter Gardens, Florida, the linebacker. Uh, he was on his official visit this weekend, but now it has come to light. He's been dismissed from his high school program uh, and now will not take part in the Army All-American game. John, I know you've done some research on this. You're very well connected in the Sunshine State, your native state. Uh, just your thoughts on the situation with Vandarius Cowan. Yeah, you know, um, obviously when you first hear the news, and, uh, and that was yesterday afternoon, you kind of say, whoa, what happened? Uh, but then you look more into it and you sort of understand, I guess, both sides of this scenario. To our understanding, um, there was a game last Thursday, so the last game that Cowan played in right before he took that trip up to Alabama. There was a personal foul. He was ejected for, I believe, the remainder of the first half, and he was carrying on some conversations with some of the spectators, including his mother at one point, and obviously that rubbed the coaches the wrong way. He was eating as well, so you know, not exactly the way you want to carry yourself as a, you know, as a senior on your high school team, as, as the best player and prospect on your high school team. So uh, the coach decided to sit him down for the rest of the game. Um, and then he takes the trip to Bama, and everything's sort of normal. We actually talked to him late Sunday night, um, and he was talking about, you know, his, his, his last high school game this Friday. You know, come, he was actually asking me to come to the game because we hadn't seen him play live this fall yet, and I was actually planning on it. But um, so clearly this took him by surprise just 24 hours later on Monday. Um, it's just, again, it's just, it's an unfortunate situation. It's certainly not as bad as anybody maybe thought. It's not a legal situation. So I think people maybe jump the gun a little bit and, and, you know, wondering, oh, is Bama going to accept his commitment? Things like that. I think this is a much more of a minor situation. And again, not to knock the, the coaches or the high school at all. You know, I understand that. And, and, you know, I've been on teams where guys have been kicked off for much less. Um, but, in terms of looking forward uh, and, and to next year, and he's another one who's an early enrollee, um, it's it's a big deal. It's a big deal for Bama to hold on to Vandarius Cowan, and they've talked to him about honoring that scholarship. So I think all of that will sort of be status quo. And, again, he's, he's done in December. So he's got five, six weeks of, of high school left, and he's focused on the big picture, something he tweeted about yesterday. So I think not as big of a deal as maybe we initially thought, but still interesting to track and something that I'm sure is going to be addressed going forward. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see. And he's not the first young man that uh, maybe the senior season didn't go as hoped or expected. It kind of reminded me, though, uh, this he was not dismissed from his program, but I know Mac Wilson did not play as well as people had hoped for his senior season. But we've all seen what he's done at Alabama, John, uh, in his freshman year already uh, playing a crucial role at fullback in the goal line situation. And then the two, you know, just uh, unbelievable, uh, the uh, vicious hits on special teams this past weekend uh, in, uh, for college, against Texas A&M in Tuscaloosa. And he just 
He's already gotten on the field a little bit at linebacker. Seems to have a very bright future. Sometimes it's just these kids have to mature and uh, handle situations a little bit better, but it's a learning experience for them. Yeah, and, and, and like we said, he's getting on campus in January. So, obviously, he's going to get that, that learning curve sooner rather than later, even sooner than a guy like Mac Wilson. Um, so, again, it, it's right. something that happens. We, we see it every year, let's be honest. We see it every year. It's not to this degree where a kid's kicked off of his high school team, but we've seen high school prospects get arrested or, or kicked out of events. Uh, we've seen hotel situations go crazy where kids have to be escorted out and they're not able to participate in things. And, and typically, if it's not criminal, um, you really never see the school giving up on the kid. Um, now, if, if this was a borderline walk-on type prospect, would, would it have happened? Probably. Let's be honest. It's still about Jimmy's and Joe's just mm-hmm. as much as, you know, molding men. Let's, let's not try to make it seem like it has nothing to do with his talent. But at the same time, again, not criminal, something that he's already publicly talked about trying to learn from. And I'm sure Alabama is trying to reciprocate that same thing with him. And that will be taken into account once he is on campus, perhaps, Nick Saban and company will take extra measures just to, you know, just to tighten them up a little bit, just to make sure that this sort of situation doesn't happen again. And, and again, you, you want to be a good teammate and you want to learn how to be a good teammate. And perhaps that's, that's priority one for Vandarius Cowan once he does get to Alabama in January. But he says Bama is still on board. Our sources confirm that. Uh, and, again, that shouldn't really be a surprise considering as far as we know what, what happened, where there's no legal situation. And now uh, another huge area of need for Alabama's defensive line. They seem to make a lot of strides this weekend with Fidarian Mathis from Monroe, Louisiana. Also hearing a lot of positive things with Elijah Conliffe, John. Yeah, you know, he was he was one of the guys on commitment watch, you know, that we thought that could, that could maybe pop. You know, he did bring his mother um, up to Tuscaloosa, which was important because he had been in the past and uh, and he had said that Bama was his leader, but Mom hadn't been. You know, Mom needed to give her blessing. Um, she did come, and as far as we know, she does have that blessing, uh, but he did not pull the trigger, although, again, Bama's still very much in good position for Conliffe, and this was an unofficial visit. I think that's important yes. to consider with him as well. So you do expect him to return for an official visit so he and Mom can get an even better look at Alabama, and this is going to be interesting. You know, this defensive line recruiting is going to be very important for Alabama down the stretch. I mean, every defensive lineman in high school has got to see what Alabama is doing and sort of say, whoa, you know, maybe I need to give Bama a little bit of a closer look because they're replacing uh, big-time NFL guys with guys who are, are going to have that role going forward. And this year you'll see a lot of that same turnover when you lose guys like Jonathan Allen and Tim Williams and Ryan Anderson, et cetera. So, it's only going to help Bama's D-line recruiting, and it's only going to increase the numbers of those top targets uh, wanting to jump on board at Alabama. So that's where it gets tricky for, for select schools in the country, maybe four or five, you know, Bama, Ohio State, maybe that's it at this point, uh, maybe Louisville, what they're trending so, so hotly right now. You know, you have to really be careful when you want to accept commitment because obviously after that point you don't want to drop a kid just because uh, another kid ranked higher or higher on your board is ready to roll with the tide. So it's, it's a tricky situation. You wonder how much that could affect a kid like that when defensive line recruiting is about to uptick in such a big way with Conliff and Fedarian Mathis and Tyler Shelvin and Marvin Wilson and Brian Ray. And, and that's not even getting into the junior college guys. So there's a lot of guys on the board here that Bama's very high on. And, of course, it's reciprocated by those kids. So you just wonder 
the timing of it, how, how soon Bama is going to be willing to accept commitments uh, and basically you know, chop down some of the few spots remaining uh, in this class. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the numbers are getting very tight, John. And speaking of those, I know he, at first he was listed as coming on an official visit, did not make the trip. Uh, but uh, what about Cam Akers, uh, the running back from Clinton, Mississippi? I've never expected him to be in this class because of Najee Harris, and we'll talk about Harris in just a second. But first, the situation with Cam Akers did not uh, come on this visit. Is it going to be rescheduled, or do you think it's a matter of Alabama uh, having uh, concentrating on Najee Harris and also uh, with Brian Robinson already in the fold, or do you think they're going to continue uh, to uh, talk with uh, Cam Akers? I think sometimes, you know, you look at the NFL draft and sometimes you just take best available and you don't really worry about the position or the numbers, things like that. And I think that's where Cam Akers falls. I mean, this is this is a top five kid in the country regardless of position, regardless of class. You know, this is a number four prospect in America. So, yes, he's the number two running back behind Najee Harris, but just a top five athlete. He plays quarterback. He's going to play running back in college. Just a dynamic player. So I think in these situations, especially considering Bama's already had this guy on the commitment list in the past. They had him committed for nearly a year. He's got a great relationship with Burton Burns. Obviously, he's very familiar with Bama. So I, I don't think you just stop recruiting a kid like that, even when it appears that other schools like Ole Miss and Ohio State and Tennessee and LSU are in much better position or, or perceived to be in much better position. So Bama sort of held their ground and continued to recruit him. Um, and they were going to have him on campus for an official visit. So I, I think they'll try to reschedule it. Don't know if it will happen because we're, we're, we're losing weeks here as, as time progresses, and obviously these other schools are going to get Cam on campus. Um, so that could hurt Bama. But, again, he's also extremely familiar with the program in campus and games and Burton Burns and all that stuff. So it wouldn't be a total shock if he did not take an official visit to Bama and still somehow ended up – in Tuscaloosa. Now, that's not the likeliest of scenarios, but again, I do think Bama will continue to recruit him all the way through. Um, again, he's just too good of a prospect not to, regardless of who you have committed right now. But again, separate from that, Najee Harris, such a priority, number one player in the country, hotly contested by Michigan and USC and UCLA and Ohio State and, and basically anybody else or everybody else. Um, so that's always a priority, but you can definitely separate the two. Um, and I think Bama's got a good chance to land one of the two. I would be surprised if they struck out on both Najee Harris and Cam Akers. I think that would be a major, major blow to Alabama's recruiting. And that's something we really haven't said in the last decade, so I don't expect that to happen. So either way, I think Bama's in great shape at the running back position, not to mention that all these running backs right now are underclassmen that they have on the current roster. So Bama's in good shape at running back. They're going to get at least one of these elite guys, and perhaps um, and what would be a very Alabama thing to do, they could surge late for a Cam Akers and maybe even get both guys on the on the commitment list, which would just be a, a disgusting embarrassment of riches. It really would. And now, Najee Harris, uh, you and uh, your colleague A.P. Stedham have done an outstanding job in tracking uh, this young man. At the last minute, it was thought he was going to come in on an official visit uh, to this Texas A&M game, but we know there were some extenuating circumstances uh, that BamaMag.com uh, was first and foremost out front uh, in this situation. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I sold it as sort of the most Najee Harris thing ever. You know, <laughs> if he was going to make that red-eye flight from Sacramento, which wasn't very close to the game he was at on Friday night, he would have had to have left 
about the third quarter of the game. Now, typically, if you don't follow Najee Harris, his team is usually up at this point. But he was facing a good defense this this week around, uh, and they had slowed him down early in the game. So he was not going to leave his team if the lead wasn't comfortable. So he had to rally his troops, and they actually had to make a comeback. So sure enough, he stayed, scored his four touchdowns, and then tried to leave after the game. Uh, and they did get to the airport, but it was just a bit too late. Uh, that flight was getting ready to take off at that point. So they were unable to make it. But, again, it was just, that's just who Najee is. You know, a lot of people look at these five stars, and unfortunately we have this example with Cowan. Najee is the opposite. This kid could care less about his ranking, could care less about how coveted he is. He doesn't like attention. He just wants to be a teammate. He wants to be a guy. He wants to be another guy. And that's why he loves Alabama and that's why he was busting his you-know-what to try to get to Alabama, but not while sacrificing a potential win for the Antioch Panthers. And, again, it's just the most Najee Harris thing ever. You know, he, he does not care about all the things that we think kids should care about or we think they do care about, I should say. Um, he's just sort of the anomaly of it, and the irony is that he's the number one player in the country. So it's a very Najee thing to do, but the best news for Bama here is that while he didn't make the visit, obviously he didn't visit any other school, which to our knowledge he hasn't yet done here in 2016. But even more importantly, it means he's going to reschedule a separate official visit for Alabama. And at this point, it's looking like right around a month from right now for the Iron Bowl, which will be another star-studded weekend. So now you, you avoid Najee visiting another school, and now you get him on campus again for yourself, and Mom will come with him, which will be her third visit to Tuscaloosa. She's only been to a couple of other campuses and none of those other campuses twice. And again, she's already been to Bama twice. So again, it's going to be tough for anybody to flip Najee Harris. We've known that for a long time, but he doesn't talk much about it. So that opens up speculation, especially in this day and age of social media. But this past weekend was actually a good thing, not only for Najee Harris and his loyalty to his team, but even for Alabama in avoiding him visiting another school and basically guaranteeing at least one more official visit before he, too, enrolls in January. So the timeline for everybody else shrinking, and Bama's already got basically one more visit locked in. And now, finally, John, the last question. I know he recently visited LSU when he went home uh, for the Southern Miss game, but he was back on campus this weekend. Your thoughts on Alabama and Dylan Moses? Well, you said it right there. You know, he was back on campus in Tuscaloosa this past weekend, so that was important for the Crimson Tide. Uh, and again, he was he was visiting family in Baton Rouge before ending up at LSU. So I think that's part of, of the importance in looking at it. But the fact of the matter is, two weeks before that point, Dylan told us, "Hey, I'm not visiting anybody. I'm only visiting Alabama. I'm recruiting for Alabama. I'm done." with the recruiting process. Uh, he told Scout that it wasn't really a prospect visit, but let's be honest, if you're at Orgeron and you've got a five-star legacy Baton Rouge native on your campus, you're going to make it as much of a prospect visit as you can. So that's how we're sort of looking at it. Um, he's still a major priority for LSU, and it still should be uh, in the realm of possibility that he ends up at LSU. But once again, as we've talked about today, he's early enrolling, so he's finishing in December beginning college football in January, and he was back at Bama once again after that point, and he's saying all the right things. He says he's still 100% solid again. He said it wasn't even a regular visit to LSU, although we certainly think it was more of a prospect visit than he's leading on. But again, he's saying all the right things. 
he did continue to recruit for Alabama this past weekend. He did spend a lot of time with his fellow commitments. He even traveled up with a fellow commitment uh, in long snapper Thomas Fletcher, who's his high school teammate at IMG. So the vibe is, is very positive for Bama and Dylan, and holding on to Dylan Moses. But again, any LSU influence there, and you wonder how much his family has to do with this, is going to be something that, that sort of perks your ears up and something to, to be very, very aware of. So I think if he returns another time or two, it becomes you know sort of the worry zone. But if he doesn't return to Baton Rouge anymore, um, not to mention whatever happens with that LSU coaching search, I think it's good news for Alabama. I think the longer that you know this coaching search goes on, it's probably better news for Alabama because, again, he's going to be done perhaps even before LSU hires or, or, or completes a staff with their new coach. So it's a good situation for Alabama. I do project him ending up in Tuscaloosa, but, again, uh, nothing in recruiting is 100%, especially with a kid who's been as, as highly coveted for literally five years from Baton Rouge like Dylan Moses. Absolutely. And, John, finally, uh, this is the last uh, week of the regular season uh, for uh, high school football in Alabama. A huge game over at Hoover with Grayson, Georgia, coming to town. Uh, I know you'll probably be out on the road. As you said, you were you had given serious thought to seeing Vendarius Cowan. Now that situation has uh, changed. Uh, where, have yeah, you decided where you plan. will be Friday? Yeah, I'm still going through it. Um, there's some big-time games, like you mentioned, Grayson and Hoover. I mean, that's you know Bama's best versus Georgia's best, basically. Um, there's some big games in Central Florida, Southern Alabama as well as, as these guys push for the playoffs. So we're going to see. It's going to be it's going to be fun breaking down and, and trying to make plans and committing to some plans. Thankfully, I don't have to do that for another couple of days. Uh, but either way, <laughs> we're excited to see this. Uh, and definitely next week, you know, into the playoffs. I can't believe they're here already, but uh, it's always an exciting time in Alabama. High school playoffs, there's, there's few sporting events and atmospheres and that, that feel like that. So it's always an exciting time of year, and before you know it, we'll be at uh, you know Jordan Hare for the Super Seven. Absolutely, we'll be here before we know it. Well, John, we always appreciate the conversation. Let everybody know. That was John Garcia with Drew D. Armand giving us a little update on Alabama recruiting following a big visit weekend when Texas A&M came to town, but. Uh, That'll pretty much do it for this episode of BAMS Radio. Thank you to William Redfish Barger for his time. Big hat tip to our man Bubba coming in and uh, stealing my host job for about 20 minutes. Call whenever you like, Bubba. I appreciated the break. But uh, that's it for this week's BAMS Radio. We'll be back next week. Obviously, it's going to be LSU week, so that's going to be pretty intense. But until then, everybody have a great rest of your week. Enjoy your weekend, and roll tide. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.